Hey everyone, Nate Mancini here. Before we start the show, I have a special announcement. Forefront Festival 2020 is going virtual, so you can join the event no matter where you live. It's happening on August 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern, and we've slimmed down the festival into a two-hour Zoom experience. It features an opening keynote by Reformed mythologist Nate Morgan Locke, breakout sessions with a bunch of accomplished artists from around the country, and a music performance to close out the night. Now, you're about to hear an interview that our board member, Zach Osinski, did with composer Delvin Case. And I'm going to break some news here. Del is going to be leading a breakout session at the virtual event, so you can interact and learn more. There are also sessions about poetry, visual art, spoken word, and more, so there will be something of interest for any creator. The event has a suggested donation of $10, but there are also free tickets available because we want everyone to get to be a part of this special event. You can learn more and get tickets at ForefrontFestival.com. Space in the breakouts is limited, so grab your ticket today. Okay, back to the show and Zach's interview with composer Delvin Case. Hey, welcome to Forefront 360, a podcast where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. My name is Zach Osinski. I am a collaborator here at the Forefront Festival, and I am so excited to welcome to the show today, Delvin Case. Uh, Del is a composer, conductor, and professor of music at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, and the founder of the musical collective Deus Ex Musica, which is an organization that promotes the use of sacred music as a resource for learning and spiritual growth. Del? Thanks so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And, you know, when I was preparing for this interview, I think one of the first things I realized was that we've been doing the podcast for two and a half years now, and I've gotten to, you know, have several conversations with guest artists, but I think you're the first classical musician we've had on the show, aside from myself. That's surprising. Yeah, well, I think you you don't want, you know, we are tend to be a problem, so you want to avoid us at all costs, <laughs> as you know from personal experience. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like classical musicians when you tell people like, what, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a classical musician. I'm a classical flutist. I, I'm a composer. They say like, oh, well, great. Yeah, I mean, usually people don't know the difference between composer and conductor, and a conductor is better known. Mm. So and of course, historically, a lot of composers have also been conductors. So, but if I say that I'm a, I'm a composer, certainly people assume I mean conductor. Mm. Um, usually, I get oh, my brother plays the guitar. That's right. usually the response I get, uh, which is great. Uh, mm-hmm. Or gee, I remember Mrs. So and So in high school. She was like my favorite teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, usually sure. that's the the response when I I tell when I sort of I tell someone I'm a music teacher or professor. Yeah, usually pretty positive. Right. Yeah, I I often get. Oh, you're a flutist. I played flute in high school. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing about the flute. You don't get that too much with bassoon. Mm-mm. Was that your primary instrument? No, actually, though I, honest to God, I've always wanted to play. And this summer I was going to learn how to play. I was going to take lessons and rent an instrument. Oh, um, principally because there aren't that many of them, but at any rate, yes. Uh, not many people would say I used to play the bassoon. Yes. <laughs> what, what is your primary <laughs> instrument? Uh, piano. Uh, okay. I don't perform as a soloist. Uh, I never really did, but I do some collaborative playing uh, of my own music, of course, but other people's as well. Okay. So could you 
unpack for us or illustrate for us what what is a composer? Because I think most of us, when we think of the word composer, we think of that that portrait of Beethoven where he's like looking up from his score and his hair is a mess and he looks all brooding. And could you just illustrate for us what it practically looks like to be a composer? Yeah. Um, well, there are certainly lots of different kinds of composers and um, probably the, the, certainly the composers today that sort of make the most money or the best are the ones who make write music for film or for video games. It's a massive in- industry. And I, th- I think that probably looks like a lot of sitting in front of a computer in a studio um, and, um, but a classical composer certainly uses technology, but uh, most of us work with pencil and paper in some capacity. And we sit down, for example, if I'm working on a piece, I'll, you know, wake up and I will go down to the piano and I'll sit by the piano or my, my table for three or four hours straight. And I will write down lines and dots, uh, mm-hmm. and try to express, you know, my musical ideas, um, and then I'll you know take a break. Usually it's about three or four hours a day for me. It's pretty sort of intense uh, brain work. You know I have a, I burn myself out after a few hours. Um, but the basic our our job sort of what makes classical composers unique, and I'm not saying better or uh, more to be valued than any other kind, uh, is the fact that our job we are fully responsible for all the musical ideas. Um, that is. When a performer, when I give a performer a piece of music that I wrote, now it'll be notated using a computer, it'll look all nice, it'll look like it was printed. But when I give them the score, as we call it, um, all the information they need to bring that piece of music to life needs to be written down. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, there are some classical composers who do uh, empower their musicians to do some improvisation at times. Uh, but there is sort of this, um, there is, it's interesting. Sort of, there are no written rules about any of this, but within the classical tradition, even the modern contemporary classical tradition, we communicate our ideas um, through the writ through written notation, principally, and that means that we have to be really good at being able to write down and to use this uh, graphic, essentially graphic notation, right? Mm-hmm. Dots and lines and squiggles, some Italian words, right? It, it, we have to be really good at using that to express the way we want music to sound, mm-hmm. because. Our music is supposed to, that's how it works, right? Uh, similar to being a playwright. Shakespeare shouldn't have to be around for his, his plays to be hmm. as powerful mm-hmm. as they were when he was alive. Yeah. And that is sort of what the, the, the really robust system of music notation lets us do. Hmm. It allows our music and our musical ideas to fully exist even when we're not in the room, even when we're not playing it. Hmm. Um, and that's just a very specific, unique challenge of the modern of the classical composer whether they were alive a thousand years ago or or today Hmm. wow how do you feel then about kind of the the debate in uh honoring a composer when you're playing their piece whether the composer is in the room like you said or the composer is Bach and they've been dead for several centuries how do you feel about the the extremes of kind of artistic liberty and um being faithful kind of explicitly to what the composer has given on the page? Well, I think there are some, a very small number of composers who are really sort of neurotic about everything in their, about, you know, indicating that exactly how they want everything to sound. And oftentimes 
there are some, there are some people who will write down sort of way more information than they need and sort of t- almost doing the performer's job for them. Mm. Um, and I don't, I mean, you're a performer and I'm not sure if I think that's probably very difficult for you, but most composers I know, and I would put myself in this camp are really thrilled when we give our score to someone and they interpret it in a way that might even be somewhat new or they bring basically if a performer is able to bring their own life and their training Mm. and their heart and soul into the playing of your music that is that's what we're doing this for Mm. like we've worked it's worked you know Mm -hmm. Uh, that means that the music we've written our ideas are rich enough for for a great performer to find them find a, a way into the piece that speaks to them it's mm. it's basically like writing a script for a, a, a for a monologue right um a great script you don't have to indicate where all the breaths are and where how you know the pitch of the words right a great actor will do that but the great actor will only be able to do that well if she or he understands who the character is if if, if the playwright has created this really compelling character that she or he can find themselves in if you know mm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I think we all want, we want you to play the notes that we wrote and the rhythms that we, that we indicated, mm-hmm. you know, and we want you to do it in a way that is consistent with the, the, the grand tradition of classical music, whatever that is mm-hmm. that we spent our lives studying. But beyond that, the fun is seeing, uh, seeing how the composer performer relationship is one of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's great. I, the, the the example that always comes to my mind is uh, Barrio and his uh, his flute sequenza and mm-hmm. how he wrote, he wrote the piece in spatial notation so the rhythm is totally not uh, explicit or exact it's supposed to be kind of approximated so he publishes this piece in the late fifties and then in the nineties publishes a new score with explicit notation for the rhythm because he got upset that performers weren't, perfor- weren't performing the rhythms that he wanted to hear. Uh, that's fun. Yeah. yeah. Try to have your cake and eat it too. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, and it's funny be- because the, that, that example is interesting because uh, performers are trained very differently from composers. Hmm. And usually when composers do allow some improvisation in their music, um, usually we have to be pretty specific about the, what's like sort of example, what, what, what we allow to be open for interpretation versus what we indicate. So it's very common for a composer to pick like three or four different notes and put them in a little box and say, play these notes in any order. And when you have a whole bunch of people doing that in the orchestra, it can sound really cool. It's not like the sort of like waves of sort of, it's like like the bubbling of a pot or something. You know what I mean? It's really cool. Um, But if you ask, if you don't give any rhythmic indication either to a solo player, if they spent their whole life playing the flute, they may not come up frankly with really interesting rhythms. They mm. might come up with really sort of predictable rhythms because they're not trained to be a composer. Mm. Um, so that's an example of how um, if a composer goes into – if a composer has a clear idea about what they want to do, the best thing to do is to write it down exactly as they want. Mm. <laughs> um, if, but if they, and they should only leave it up to, to improvisation if they really don't care what they get. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. You know? Yeah. So for you personally, how does composing become the profession for you? How, how did that come about? Well, when I was learning to play piano, when I was, you know, five or six, um, even as early as then, I, I didn't really like to practice. I liked to just like try to sight read through the whole little book and just get to know as much music as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also was 
making up little songs on the piano. And I certainly wasn't a, wasn't a prodigy at all. Um, but I had a music teacher, piano teacher who was interested in modern music and she got me writing some little pieces. Mm. Um, but I really don't know why I got into my head that this is what I did, but, um, I wrote some music for piano and then I was, I think I was about 15 years old and I decided I was playing in concert band. I played euphonium, which is like a a small tuba. Mm -hmm. Um, and for some reason I decided just to write my own piece for band. Hmm. So I asked my band teacher and he showed me how to set up a score and I, I wrote it and I brought it to the local, you know, sort of the, the, the sort of the regional wind ensemble and, and they performed it live and it just blew my mind to hear wow. 60 people play my music and city hall and a bunch of my friends from high school came and brought a banner for me and there was an article <laughs> in the newspaper and of course and then when you get that kind of social uh, uh social acknowledgement and, yes. and praise that's you know there's no turning back at that point yes it was like hitting the last second shot for me you know, I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do this right you know, and then it's sort of like with a lot of things, once you do something once and you identify yourself as, as that thing, uh-huh. then it sort of gets a life of its own. Uh-huh. You know, and you just, I decided about a year or two later that I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a composer for the rest of my life, but I knew I wanted to spend my life learning about music. Uh-huh. And my favorite thing to do is write music. So really at ages 16 or 17, I decided I wanted to go and go on and get a PhD and teach at a college. And that's what I've been lucky enough to be able to do. Mm. Um, wow. So I do, you know, I, when I'm working on a project or a commission, I'll spend three or four hours a day composing if I can. And then the rest of the day is teaching or preparing for class. Mm. And then the summers, you know, I'll mostly work on composing or some other, you know, project. Um, but um, I'm not, I don't like it when I'm, like if someone said, here's a month, do nothing but write a piece of music, I think I'd tear my hair out. It's a, I need a little more variety in my life yeah. than that, to uh-huh. be honest. Yeah. Some people would love that. I, I need to do different things every few hours. Mm, right. <laughs> How much of your work would you say is balanced between a piece that you're writing on commission and a piece that you're writing, um, I don't know what the alternative would be, but just, just to write it? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough because I have a, you know, at this point, I, I have a tenured faculty position. So what that means is, you know, I have a salary and I only teach, you know, six months of the year. And the rest of the time I'm supposed to be creating, you know, my own professional scholarship or creative work. Mm-hmm. So I'll write a piece, whether or not somebody pays me for it, because I'm sort of already being paid, you know, I'm being paid to do this work. I'm expected oh. to do this work regardless. And um, so most, you know, I mean, I, these days I only write the pieces I want to write for the groups I want to write. Uh, yeah. and if they have some, some commissioning money, that's great. Mm. Um, uh, I think it depends project to project. Uh, think as with a lot of things, things fall in your lap. Um, I have a, my, my greatest hit is a piece for orchestra that's uh, called rocket sleigh. And it's a, it's a Christmas piece. It's an overture for orchestra that gets played all over the place at, for holiday pop shows for, you know, families who come dress their kids up and show, show up at the orchestra mm-hmm. in, you know, uh, in South Dakota or something and anywhere all over the world actually. And, you know, so I, I used to spend a lot of time pitching that to orchestra saying, Hey, you want something new for your Christmas show? And, you know, randomly the Indianapolis symphony said, Oh, we like it, but could you write, could we like this piece a lot, but we'd like you to, since it's brand new, we, we think it might well, be basically, could you insert another Christmas carol into your piece to make it more familiar? You know, so they commissioned me to do a new version of that piece. Mm. 
I mean, that's a really random thing, but I, I did it for them, you know, or, um, so you never sort of really know when someone comes to you and says, we, we'd like you to do this project. It's oftentimes hard to turn that down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm lucky enough these days to, to really only write the pieces that I want to write before okay. the people that I want to write them for. Okay. That's great. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, it is. And, and I'm not going to, it's not like people have been beating down my door for my entire life to write music for them. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. you know, not that much of a hot property. Um, but it is pretty rare to, for a composer to write a piece of music for an artist or ensemble that they don't already have some kind of significant connection with. Mm-hmm. Cause there are so many composers out there mm-hmm. and people want to work with people they know and trust. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's the most fun anyway. Okay. Could you talk about who some of your early musical influences were when you were training as a composer? I, in addition to writing music, I, I'm a scholar of popular music and I've listened mm-hmm. to pop music for my entire life. And, you know, since grad school, actually just after grad school, when is when I sort of rediscovered popular music and started to do academic work and research and teaching in it. Um, but I bring that up because really the most formative music on me has been the Beatles. Mm. And that started when I was three or four years old, listening to my dad's Beatles records mm-hmm. while I built with Legos for hours and hours. And I've, I've often told people that I think the reason why I like to analyze and break down and try to understand how popular music works is because I was constantly building little things out of Legos hmm while I was listening to music. Uh-huh. It's almost like it was so, and, but the Beatles, the music, the music is so interesting and so rich yes. and every generation seems to find their own way into the music of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, there are, I have ripped off Beatles songs for several of my compositions. You'd never know because I'm ripping off a sort of particular compositional technique, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. uh, but their approach to orchestration and timbre, which is sound color and the, always the surprising turns that their 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 songs take, and the the emotional uh, range of their songs, and the so the fact that they can communicate so much in such a s- small uh, time frame, two three four minutes. Yeah, I mean these are all the things that make a great piece of music: the ability to keep your listener on your on their toes, to keep giving them something interesting, and to create a compelling sort of sound world that makes them want to come back again and again to listen to it. I mean, these are the things that Beethoven does and Debussy and Stravinsky, but it's also the things that any great uh, popular musician does. And, you know, the Beatles are the best as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Yes. Wow. I love that example. Um, I'm sorry to bring it back to Barrio again. I just finished a <laughs> seminar on him, so it's <laughs> fresh on my mind. Um, but I just read a paper about his uh, collaborations with his with his former wife, the late mezzo-soprano Kathy Barbarian. And he, uh, she commissioned him to write a series of arrangements of Beatles songs in uh, a Baroque chamber ensemble <laughs> instrumentation. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So they... So he writes four of them, but the first one is an arrangement of Michelle. And so I have the score in front of me and I'm trying to analyze the chord progression. I'm like, what is this? What are these harmonies? What is this? What is this voice leading? So it's, but it it works. Like you could analyze Michelle as if it were 
a 17th century Baroque cantata. Um, and, it, and it did call into question, like, how, you know, Beatles, you know, pop musicians, but high art, low art, like in the Beatles, you really do get kind of this blurring of distinctions. Um, but I Absolutely. just amazing. Well, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and I, I mean, this whole high art, low art thing is, I think it's a, it's a rubric we probably should best avoid. But yeah. I think the reason why the Beatles have, sp- have spoken to a lot of classically trained musicians is that their harmonic language, the chords they use are just much more varied than, than most popular musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, you could argue that their approach to rhythm is mm-hmm. much less interesting than others. Their approach to time signature or meter is actually more interesting. But the point is that for you know, the, the focus in the Western classical tradition is generally upon harmony. That is, uh, if you take a music theory class in, in college or high school, you're going to spend 95% of your time talking about chords and the way the chords relate. Mm-hmm. You're going to spend very little time talking about rhythm. And you're going to t- spend zero amount of time talking about the way the music actually sounds. We call it a timbre. Now, if you look at other, if you look at jazz, for example, rhythm is much more important, and timbre, sound color, what makes you know John Coltrane's sax sound different from, you know, Lester Young's sax, apart from them being different saxophones. You know, like that, their color is so important. Um, so the point is that the whole tradition of classical music, even music being written today, is there's a focus on chords and notes. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Beatles write music that sp- speaks the language of classical music, both sort of literally and metaphorically, uh-huh. in that it literally uses the chords that we learn, but it also, by emphasizing harmony, speaks more generally to what we are sort of conditioned through our tradition to 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 value the mm. most mm. Mm-hmm. and as a result we can explain and understand the, the beatles music using the same uh kind of interpretive language that you use in for classical music which is what you were describing doing mm. i would venture to say that if you tried to look at a robert johnson blues tune mm. much of the training that you had as a classical musician would not work and it's right. not because the music's not as good it's that we just don't have the, the same framework yeah you know we don't have that lens, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so uh, I think the Beatles speak to us because we're already receptive as mm-hmm. classical musicians to what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that point that you made about um, the ways that harmonic language resonates with us and speaks with us because it's kind of the language that, that we speak, whether consciously or subconsciously. Uh, and that distinction between... Um, the harmony of the Beatles versus uh, I was watching someone break down a Joni Mitchell song the other night and just talking about all the sus chords that she uses. And like, if I had a, if I had that lead sheet in front of me, like I wouldn't have the language to really uh, to unpack it and make sense of it. And yet just listening to it, like it does somehow like communicate to me what she is expressing. Oh Yeah. I mean, and Joni Mitchell's also using all these weird open tunings on her guitar. I always have a hard time sort of just hearing it. Mm-hmm. There are all these like pedal points and sus, like things that are hanging over from bar to bar. And, um, but, you know, it's funny. This is, you know, I know that you're, you want, you know, that in Forefront, you folks are interested in, in faith and, and art. And I think a lot, I think that what we're talking about here is a lot of resonances to, for example, biblical interpretation. Mm. 
you think about it like in a sense the the you could see the biblical text as a score mm-hmm. and that it doesn't live unless it's manifested and used in community mm. right unless it's it's being used either in a liter in liturgy or for private devotion but even that it's existing to help the church right or people existing in a community and of course any community is formed by its own place in place literal place of the 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 cultural background of, 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 of its members, the age, race, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no way to get outside of your own contingent interpretive lens, right? Mm-hmm. When you engage the Bible, but why is the Bible the li- like, why is it a living document beyond the theology of sort of word as being a living? The way we can talk about the text being living is that it, it speaks just as richly and powerfully to anybody at any time in any place, despite the fact that communities might be so different. Wow. Now it doesn't mean that it's the same. It's going to speak the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it speaks it's in that way. It's a living document. And so the, the musical score, a good musical score has to be the same thing. It has to work. If, if I perform it or if 300 years from now, someone performs it now, it's not going to, it's going to be recognizable, but it's not going to sound exactly the same because in 300 years, a lot of things will have changed, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to push this too hard, but if you're performing it the exact way it was sound, it sounded 300 years ago, that's valuable. But I think it has in some ways it's got somewhat less value than the contemporary performer making it their own. Hmm. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, that we change the, the, the word of God, but what I'm trying to say is that if we only understood for example, the Ten Commandments, the way they were understood literally by Moses, mm. we wouldn't be doing the. I mean, Jesus shows this in the Gospels, right? He reinterprets, right? Mm. He shows how in the context of first century Judea, in a new concept of, of, of or an, an adapted concept of, of God, right? Mm. That you have to act differently. You can actually heal people on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Like that's allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, and he actually says, look, if you just do it the way Moses did, you're not actually doing it right. Mm-hmm. You know, so that always makes me think about, of course, that would make if the squat, sorry, if a, if the score is the word of God, then that makes me God because I make the score. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that's that's easy. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't want to apply that. But, you know, I mean, in the sense that you know, we, yeah, yeah. we do come up with uh, a text that we hope lives on and is interpreted authentically mm-hmm. by anybody Mm-hmm. who it speaks to, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Caveat, I'm not God. <laughs> wow, that that is such a beautiful vision that you just illustrated. Um, could you... I mean, you're a performer. You, you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Like, you're a performer. You, I'm sure you listen to lots of recordings of, of flautists play who knows what, mm-hmm. Apri, maybe even phone or something like that, and you don't want to sound just like them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're not going to change the notes or the rhythms, but like if you're playing it just like Jean-Pierre Rampal, mm-hmm. that's a, probably a bit good for you as, as you learn. But if you don't make it your own, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to get as much out of it as Debussy would have wanted, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think about there's that notion of I don't know if any composer ever like explicitly said this, but there's kind of like when you're preparing a piece of music there, there are professors who will tell you, well, there's composers who say that 
once I've written the piece of music, it no longer belongs to me in the sense of it no longer belongs to me. The So I can't have control over what X performer is going to do with the music that I wrote. But sorry, I'm just chewing on this whole like honoring in a way what a composer has written. And yet the like goodness in in regards to like yourself as a musician, but also the piece um, of playing it, performing it, interpreting it with your own voice in your own kind of cultural context. Um, yeah. And I, I notice I'm, I'm, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that you should intentionally put something into the score mm-hmm. or let's say put something into the Bible. That's, that's not there. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm saying is we have to recognize that there's no way we, I, there's no way I can play Bach the way Bach played it, mm. right? There's also no way I can play Bach the way that somebody else plays Bach. Mm. I mean, I can imitate, but imitation is the first step towards interpretation, right? I mean, if you can't play it and maybe you learn it, it's the same as in an oral tradition where if you're a jazz player, you you, you learn, you transcribe solos by Coltrane, you play them, you try to match them, mm. but no one's going to pay to hear you play Coltrane solos live. If you can't get into that flow state and play Coltrane's tune, but improvise differently, you're not, you're not a jazz player. Hmm. You're like a jazz museum or something. Hmm. You know what I mean? In that case, you might as well listen to Coltrane play. Right. Um, you know, and that, again, I, I, I hate to push this, but I feel like what Jesus was doing a lot of the times is saying the, the, the scriptures were the score and Hey Pharisees or whatever, you're, you're hewing too close to the, to hmm. just the notes and the rhythms and you're, you're losing the perspective and the sort of the beauty and power and the value, like what's really what God is really trying to say, hmm. you know, I mean, cause you're a performer and I, I, you know, I'm assuming that, you know, one of the things you're trying to do is find the piece, right. Find what the piece is really about, uh-huh. you know, it's not just to make it sound beautiful. It's like, you know, what is this piece really about? And you as a performer, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there's no way you can find you can find out what the piece is about unless there's a you in there, like mm-hmm. Zach. Unless Zach finds Zach's way into, you know, uh, you know, a fruit snot or something. Hmm. You know, if that, if that sort of makes sense. Like it's not focusing, it's not making you the focus hmm. of the process, but it's saying that without your own sub- subjective, personal experience and and deep love for the music, you can't do an authentic job playing it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe you don't agree, but I. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, just talking to a lot of performers, I feel like this, and I'm a conductor, you know, so I, I'm doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's something liberating there too, where the kind of the culture of conservatory life is, when you're training, like get the piece to where it is technically acceptable. I don't know that, at least musicians in the states are really trained in how to take a piece further than that. Um, Mm. Like, like a friend of mine was talking about, like, we need to have a class in how to be a creative, (laughs) essentially like Mm. practices and like, you've learned the piece. Now, what do you do? Um, uh, Recordings are tough because suddenly because of post-production and digital sound quality. Now the standard of technical perfection for live players is higher than it was ever has ever been before. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, I now I'm not a performer, so I you know principally, so I don't have to worry about this. But it would seem to me that if you want the perfection, 
Like if you just want to hear it perfect, go home and listen to it. Mm. You know, stand outside the concert hall and listen to it on Spotify. Mm. Okay. But if you want to see or see and hear a living human being bring that music to life mm. in the concert hall, that's why you spend the money and put on a nice outfit and, and go inside and sit, you know, and, and listen and sweat in a concert hall as a special event, you know, to hear how that music lives that one night mm-hmm. on March, March 12th, 8 p.m. in Indianapolis by so-and-so, you know, mm-hmm. like people say, oh, I'm going to go hear the, you know, people don't usually go hear, say, oh, I can't, I'm going to go hear the Mozart, a Mozart flute sonata. Like maybe they do if they're flutists, but usually they, they go because their favorite flutist is coming to town or right, let's right. be honest. I wish that happened more often, but it's usually, it's the great soloist. It's the personality of the great virtuoso that puts butts in the seats as they say right yeah, yeah. so you want to hear their own interpretation you want to hear what person you know ron paul is going to do with the mozart food concerto mm-hmm. you know like that's why you hear that piece played by a bunch of different people because you want to hear what they bring to it you know how it goes mm-hmm. what i want to hear is i want to hear i want to leave that live concert thinking about that piece in a way i've never thought about it before hmm. and to be honest that's what i want in a sermon no huh, right. <laughs> you know Right. You know, it's, it's just, I know the text, huh. but I need help making it live for me. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you speak then a bit to the, the subjects that you tend to be captivated by or drawn to when you're composing a piece of work? Yeah. Well, most of my music is actually, uh, sacred or i mean that word sacred is is complicated um i would almost say my music is oftentimes biblical in the sense that usually i'm writing a piece of music in response to some biblical idea or or story or character Uh um but the music i write is principally not for use in a church service so i i very rarely write for choir um and um usually i write for orchestra or a chamber that is like a like a group of people or a solo singer i have an opera these are all artistic responses to elements of the the christian tradition Mm -hmm. usually biblical um but rather than creating music that's used by people in a service uh as a part of worship i i create music that i think when people hear in a concert hall also makes them think but they're instead of thinking about or listening to a, a poem by, you know, a secular love poem or, or listening to a symphony that's sort of about nothing other than itself. The music that I write is, is encourages listeners to, um, to be drawn into the ideas from the Christian tradition that are powerful for me. Mm-hmm. So I oftentimes think of my music as sort sort of like a sermon in the way that it's an, it's a musical interpretation of an idea Mm. That oftentimes is from the Christian tradition. Mm. Um, and again, my hope is that I don't care if you're an audience member who is a Christian or not, that you'll leave hearing my, hearing my music thinking differently or in a new way about the subject, mm. which oftentimes is something from the Bible mm-hmm. or the Christian tradition. Yeah. It's like painting a biblical scene. Mm. You know? Yeah. Everyone's painted the Good Samaritan, you know, but. Rembrandt did it best, and you, you know, like like you see that, and you'll never think of you've seen that. You know, did I did I say good story? I meant the prodigal son. I'm sorry. If you look at Rembrandt's The Prodigal Son, like you'll never hear that story again, the mm-hmm. same way because the humanity he brought to it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's mm-hmm. a sermon. I mean, because that because you leave you you look at that painting, you, you can't 
you can't ever hear that story again without thinking of Rembrandt's sort of interpretation. Mm -hmm. you know? Wow. Now, one thing that I, um, is really interesting about your music, the, the first piece when you're talking about this that comes to mind that I've heard of yours is your piece Ruach for mm -hmm. string quartet. Um, and yeah, when we do bring that word sacred into a musical context, uh, we're going to think of something very kind of tonal, something, we're going to think of Bach or something. Um, can you talk about writing quote unquote sacred music or just biblically inspired music, um, but uh, using a language that is uh, more likely than not kind of foreign or alien to your average churchgoer. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, I'm not sure how many of your, your listeners know much about contemporary classical music, but it oftentimes is, can be very dissonant. It can be, it can be, dis, uh, it's distinctly trying to push the envelope and sound different and new, usually by embracing elements of noise or, as I said, dissonance mm -hmm. in ways that, I mean, the analog would be uh, contemporary in contemporary visual art would be, uh, you know, abstraction or the use of, of surprising materials in new ways. Mm -hmm. If you've ever walked into, a, into an art gallery and said, why is this here, or is this art? Um, I mean, that's a very simplistic response, but it's one of the responses that contemporary people have when they're confronted with something that exists within the context, the traditional context of art, let's say, in a gallery or in a concert hall, <clears throat> yet that doesn't, doesn't fit what we expect. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the visual arts, obviously a Jackson Pollock, it's a canvas hung on a wall with paint splatters. So like everything's there about it being a piece of art, with the exception that you can't tell what it is and it looks like a three-year-old did it. Mm -hmm. um, and yet that is considered art and it's pushed the boundaries of what art can be. And the same is true for modern classical music where most of us use the same 12 notes that Mozart did. Some composers have found other ones. It's called microtonal music, but you know, most of us use the same 12. <laughs> you know, but none of us wants to write like Mozart. You know why? Because we're different. And it's also, we're also living, you know, 300 years after him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's just, there's too much that's happened in history. There's been too much other kinds of music out there for us to just ignore. Mm. Um, and so bringing this back to your question, um, if I'm moved by, for example, this piece Ruach, piece Ruach is about the Holy Spirit. It's about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon the disciples like tongues of flame. And they started speaking these languages that they didn't understand. And the people standing outside didn't know what was going on. They heard a whoosh of wind. They thought the guys, guys were drunk up there because of how they were acting, what they were saying. This is a weird event. It's a weird way to start a church. You know, but that's what happened. <laughs> no one really knew what was going on. Obviously, the gospel writer is trying to describe it using all these metaphors like a tongue of flame and a sound like a whooshing wind, right? Mm -hmm. It's not – wasn't literally those things, right? Mm -hmm. If you go back and look at the text, unless, we get, unless the translation, unless I'm getting it wrong. But, you know, this metaphor in there in a sense. Yeah. Uh, so that was a weird event. So the, my piece, Ruach, is about trying to capture the strangeness of that event and the, the unpredictability of the spirit now and back then and the fact that a whole new movement started because of this gift of god mm. that couldn't even be described and made people do weird things mm -hmm. so i'm not going to write a piece of music when, I'm, when that when that text and that story in the bible speaks to me if i'm going to respond to that and try to bring that to life 
it's probably not going to sound like Mozart. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's going to sound like Del Case, hopefully, because it's, I'm trying to respond to the text in an authentic, honest way. Mm-hmm. But secondly, I'm trying to capture something very different. I'm not trying to create a piece of music that people sing along to on Pentecost Sunday. I'm trying mm-hmm. to create a piece of music that helps dramatize or bring to life in a new way the story and the ideas underneath it. The fact that being gripped by the spirit can be frightening for you mm-hmm. or for others, or at the very best, unable to be understood and explained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this piece, if, if your listeners have a chance to listen to it, I mean, not only does it sound oftentimes incredibly unpredictable and very, very dissonant, but it also asks the musicians, the four players, not just to play their instruments, but to actually vocalize while they're playing. They're actually actually asked to yell and scream and whisper and breathe. And at one point they're asked to put down their instruments and laugh, yes. which is very, if you see it live, it's very uncomfortable for the audience. Yeah. And that's intentional because you know what? When you're gripped by the spirit, it can be very uncomfortable. If you don't know what you're going to do next, when you really give up yourself to faith in God, and you are willing to go where God is sending you, wow. you know, you have to let go of that ego, you know? So creating almost a sense of discomfort on the part of the audience is actually sort of a theological purpose, which is just try to make you feel maybe how the apostles felt, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so all your listeners need to do is hear the first five seconds of this piece <laughs> and they'll tell it unlike any other church piece they've heard before, but that's the goal. It's not just to be weird and experimental, you know, and there's a lot of modern art there that is just meant to provoke. But my piece is really intended to try to create this experience that might capture some of the elements of Pentecost that aren't that we tend to gloss over. Mm. You know, when we just put it into a like in my daughter, she's three in her in her children's Bible, there's a nice little picture of the disciples there with a little bit of fire in their heads and everyone's smiling. Right. Just right next to, you know, Jesus raising Lazarus a couple couple pages before. Mm. You know, like of course, the crucifixion was in there, but you know, it's just another, you know, it's been domesticated, right? And that's great for kids, but in reality, it was a really weird, scary event. Yes. And so the music I write is gonna have to, it's gonna have to get that across. Yeah. Wow. So, how do you find people respond to a piece like Rock just in a given any concert hall, like where there's no kind of religious context around it? It's just being presented as what it is. How do you find people respond? Well, you know, you usually get to write a program note, so you get to just sort of describe for listeners what you're going for. Mm. Um, and I have found myself that sort of the more experimental or sort of extreme the music is, the more people respond because there's 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 more to talk about. Mm. You know, most people have never heard a piece of music in which the violinist like literally yells while he's playing. Right. Um, so there's always something to talk about there. Uh, and you know, if you it's not a piece of music that requires anyone to have a particular faith to, mm. to understand. I mean, I hope that it might contribute to the life of faith of a Christian, mm. but I also fundamentally, I hope it works as a piece of music. Cause if it doesn't work as a piece of music, it's just a bad piece of music and that's not helping anybody. <laughs> um, mm. But at the same time, I, there are enough ideas in there that, you know, that a person who's not a Christian can, can talk about mm-hmm. and say, that's a really interesting take on this idea. I don't believe it happened, but interesting take, like that's fine. Yeah. You know, so I actually, most of my music is 95% of the time performed in secular contexts. Mm-hmm. I've never had any blowback or pushback. Mm. It's never been a negative thing. Wow. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you do, um, 
also write music explicitly for the church and for spiritual contexts. Um, could you talk about that and maybe share with us a bit about the work that you're doing with Deus Ex Musica? Yeah. So, um, you know, I do have some choral music that is, that is, you know, performed as an anthem occasionally. Um, but, um, Deus Ex Musica is, a, is essentially an organization that is sort of trying to um, promote and encourage churches and musicians to think about the ways that music can serve their congregation and their their own lives of faith, but not in worship. So essentially we create resources and put on live events that essentially ask people to or allow, or uh, not ask, uh, to allow, to um, uh, uh, encourage, and to equip people to use music listening as a way of getting deeper into the scriptures. Mm. So the process that I'm talking about of someone sitting and listening to Ruach and then thinking about how it makes them think differently about, say, Pentecost or the Holy Spirit, that's essentially what Deus Ex Music is trying to do intentionally. Mm. Uh, so I'll just, just describe the example of the event that we put on last year, which was our first, our second live event, but sort of shows exactly how this happens. Essentially, we took three psalms. We asked nine composers to set them to music. What we did is we took one psalm, for example, Psalm 57, uh, and we had three composers create new set, musical settings of them just for a one singer and a pianist. Brand new musical interpretations of the psalms. And then we gathered, we did that for, with two other psalms. So three psalms, nine composers, triads of, of psalms. And then we had an ecumenical evening held at a church. We had Christians of all different um, denominations and, uh, and backgrounds come together for what we called musical Bible study. And they gathered and they heard the three settings in Psalm 57 right in a row. Boom, boom, boom. It was a total of 15 minutes. And then broke into small group. The 20 minutes of small group Bible study. But the question was, Okay, you just heard three brand new interpretations of Psalm 57, this ancient text. Mm -hmm. How do you, so what? Like, how, how do you, <laughs> would, you know, you'd ask a question, which did you like the best? But no one really answered that question. It's more like, okay, how did each setting make you think about the text differently? How does it affect your life? Mm. Um, it's basically just like Bible study, except instead of holding the Bible in front of us and saying, trying to interpret it, we're actually holding the piece of music between us and the scripture. The music does an interpretation for us. Mm. So we're viewing scripture through an interpretation already. Mm -hmm. um, so all essentially we are evaluating and responding to someone else's interpretation, but someone who's interpreted someone, an interpretation that was created out of months of hard work mm. by, I should mention nine composers who all came from different Christian traditions. Mm. So we also had, you know, an Armenian, apostolic composer and a Roman Catholic composer and a Venezuelan evangelical and a mainliner and a, you know, a Methodist. And they all approached the text in different ways. Sometimes it reflected their tradition. Sometimes it didn't because yeah. they're all artists. But basically what happened, this, this, this event essentially shows that you can do this. You basically get people together in a room, play them some sacred music, and then they create an opportunity for them to talk about how they react and respond to the biblical text as a result of hearing the music, mm. we are creating resources that, for people to do this online. Mm. And hopefully at your, when we, hopefully if we can collaborate on your online version of the festival mm -hmm. or hopefully a live version in the future, we can do this kind of thing where people can, mm. can listen yeah. and then talk. Mm -hmm. um, but notice that this is, this is different from using music in worship. 
right. to help you sort of feel God and, and operate within sort of a ritualistic component. Mm. You know, this is really taking music out of worship service and saying it's, it's more for study. Mm-hmm. It's not just about understanding the text. It's about making the text live for you in a way that is valuable to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the text becomes embodied in a way that it wouldn't in a worship service. It's kind of like having, it's kind of like having a painting on the wall. And yes. Yeah. It reminds me of, I kind of think of dancing music as kind of like what would happen if you walk into a beautiful cathedral or a, let's say like a, like a Gothic church and you're surrounded by all these extraordinary stained glass windows. Now, normally you're there for mass or for a service and you're bathed in the, the, the colorful light from, from the sun. Mm-hmm. And you look up and you see those stories come literally come to not to come to life, come to light. Right. Mm-hmm. But you never stop and like look at them mm-hmm. and, and really look at them as a piece of art and ask what was the artist trying to do? Mm-hmm. Now, maybe if the sermon's really boring, you might, I'll admit I have a time, <laughs> but I kind of think of dancing music as like a time when you show up to church and someone's removed all the stained glass windows and put them in a, in the, in the, in the, in the community room uh-huh. on an easel. Uh huh. And they say, "Hey, look at these. Just just look at them as art. And what was the what was the artist trying to tell you about God? Now, this is an interesting way to look at them. Yeah. You know, they were they have they work wonderfully as a means of bringing us into God's presence through the light that they shine upon us in the service. But that's not the only way to to experience them, and they are worth encountering as art, mm. not." quote unquote just part of the church right right so our deus ex musica project was based upon pieces of music that were written expressly for this event but our online resources will take great pieces of church music and ask you to listen to them as as compositions Hmm. essentially doing the analog of the stained glass window thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah so we hope that that will be a blessing to people who love music and love church, but want to experience both in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you find that talking about music that you've all, because in a sense, an evening like this is a shared experience. And so even someone who's not a classically trained musician, do you feel like there there's hospitality there that, that people feel comfortable coming as they are and talking about something that they wouldn't normally otherwise be exposed to. Well, that's our goal. And we were very encouraged that we judging by the the kind of folks who came to this event last year in Boston, most were not musicians. Mm. So they didn't feel like they had to be a musician and most were not clergy. So we seem to get a bunch of amateurs, a bunch of musical and religious lay people, which is exactly what we want. Mm. I think it's important not to build these these events as concerts because they imply that you're supposed to sort of sit and listen passively. Mm-hmm. We usually we build build this and others as events, un, a unique event, yes. you know. Uh, so we we think that there has been hospitality towards others, and um, we did frame the frame the event with um, some presentations or quick introductions by clergy, basically introducing people to the text, but also sort of making it clear that this is a church event, right? It's not, mm. it's not for musicians, yeah, yeah. you know, it's just a new way to, to get into the scriptures. And again, when you, you show up at church, like 
hopefully churches, you feel welcome to walk into any church. Mm-hmm. And if this, if you need to be a biblical scholar to understand the sermon, that's not really a church anymore. It's a, it's an academic lecture, right? Mm-hmm. So similarly, you know, we want to make sure that there's an environment where people can walk in off the street or whatever and, 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 and experience it in the right way. They don't have to be a pro yeah. Yeah. or have any experience with this kind of music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I imagine coming into a, that's a really unique setting to to step into in the sense that the world is so noisy and that we have so many voices and articles and things coming at us all at once. And so to step in a, into a space where we're listening, but there's a, there's a communal aspect there that we're all listening to the same thing at the same time. Um, that sounds really... Uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> well, I'd like to think that I think the act of just stopping and listening and focusing is, can be spiritual in the sense that it, it's sort of homologous with the act of prayer, right? And that looks sort of looks the same as the same structure. Um, both of them require you just to sort of stop and focus on something. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in a space that's quiet and peaceful mm-hmm. and Jesus went to the garden at night to pray or when he, uh, so right before the feeding of the 5,000, when he had withdrawn up to the hill to pray and he was called back down, like even Jesus needed to be by himself yeah. and, to, and to just be able to listen to the word of God. And um, certainly there should, I think there ought to be space in church services for, for meditation and quiet reflection. Mm. Not all traditions focus on that. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Um, but I think that the classical music concert is, and you know, I think I've talked about this before, I think it's one of the few places in modern society where there's the social pressure to do that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I'm not talking about religious music. I say, if you go to the, or symphony orchestra, there's a thousand people in symphony hall and they're all sitting quietly mm-hmm. and you're not even sort of allowed to go up to the, go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like considered rude. Like you really have to sit there quietly and now you don't have to focus, but you can't move. Right. And there's a kind of spiritual discipline there, even if it's not focused on God that I think we could all learn from. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, but I do think there's also a place, again, when we go to church, I think a lot of us are looking to get enter- entertained to a certain extent. And I think a lot of church music, and I would not say this is just like praise and worship music. I would say a lot of mainline churches use traditional worship are are trying to make their, their, their services kind of entertainment as well. Like, mm-hmm. yet, oftentimes that means the music is fast and loud or technically brilliant. That's all fine, but I think there's a space for removing the performative a bit and sort of flipping the script and saying, you know, if this is not about this is not about how I feel in the moment or how the music makes me feel. It's not what it does for me uh, in terms of how I feel about God. It's about what I give to the experience, the, the focus I give, mm. and then what I get out of it because of what I give. It's not a passive thing, mm. if that makes sense. Sure. And I think that's really important as a person of faith, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. What can we expect to see from Deus Ex Musica in the, in the coming future, and how, how can we be involved? Well, thanks a lot for asking. Of course, things are up in the air because of the pandemic. Um, we do have another cycle of our Psalms event that we are planning on doing live as soon as possible in Boston. Mm-hmm. That's six composers setting two new Psalms, um, three new Psalms, excuse me. 
we are do, we are involved heavily involved in the National Conference of the American Academy of Religion and the Society for Biblical Literature, which is a lot of words, but it's basically a massive international conference about religion and theology. It held, it's actually going to be held in Boston this year. We're going to have uh, presentations and concerts uh, that hopefully encourage scholars and pastors to look at music in this way. Our blog is really active. We have a lot of long-form articles and interviews with musicians and scholars and teachers uh, about how their music relates to their lives as musicians. And we also have about a dozen podcast podcast episodes that feature long-form interviews as well. Um, so we've got a lot of content happening, hopefully more and more live events. Hopefully we, we will be collaborating with Forefront in some way uh, and also get our live events to happen uh, in other locations. Mm-hmm. Again, we were planning on doing it, so they get Wheaton College in Illinois and at California Baptist University in LA area. So a lot of it's on hold, but we are prayerfully hoping that these events will happen. Yes. <laughs> uh, we, you know, our website is deus-ex-musica.com. Uh, and again, if people will visit, they can actually sign up for our monthly updates. Uh, you can see video from our various events and listen to these new Psalms actually that we mm. put on great videos and performances of those. You can read the blog posts and you can also, if you're a musician, you can pitch a project, you know, where we have a re- small record label. We've recruited at least a couple of, of recordings of sacred music. Uh, so, you know, we are looking to expand our projects. So please reach out. Great. All right. Well, one last question, then I'll let you go. Um, if you had an encouragement or a challenge for Christians in the arts, what would it be? Well, of course, this only comes out of my experience, but I spent a long, long time trying to understand and explain how I could use my artistic calling in the service of God. And I spent a lot of time being guilty and worried that I wasn't doing it the right way. Mm. And what I've learned is that I think a calling to be an artist is a real gift from God. And we don't have to understand it or even know what we're doing. Uh, I think we should trust that God has given that to us. And whether we you know, write a textbook on theology and music or whether we play the flute and orchestra their whole lives and witness for Jesus because of the way we act kindly towards our, our section, you know, our section leader. We don't know how God is going to use our artistic calling. And I would say, don't waste your time being guilty and worried like me. <laughs> so trust, trust in God, you know, right. makes sense. Yeah. Excellent. Dal, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for sitting down and having the conversation today. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to chat with you. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Um, if you have not already, go ahead and subscribe to Forefront 360 on iTunes. Go ahead and leave us a review. It really, really helps the show. Uh, check out deus-x-musica.com to find more about Deus Ex Musica and what they're doing. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, keep pursuing excellent art and authentic faith. Until next time.